one of a series of podcasts by Paldon Jenkins, and I live on a farm in the far west of Cornwall in the southwest of Britain. And these podcasts cover my interests as a veteran of the revolution and as a cancer patient and a person who's nearing the end of his life and looking at things in a deeper and wider way. going to share with you the discussion which is going to follow the regression session that I recounted in the previous podcast. having travelled a lot before coming to Earth, and that was one thing which qualified me to act as a consultant on Earth. My soul hadn't been woven or specifically prepared for incarnation on planet Earth in the way that many other souls would be. I'd been through some significant and intense experience already before I engaged with Earth. The stuff that goes on up there is of no comparison to that on Earth. There's something that is so enormous, and yet on Earth all the volume is turned up. It's really intense. The scale of some things that happen in the universe are immense and much larger than what we're aware of on planet Earth, but the thing about Earth is that it's so significant by dint of the history and the evolutionary pathways we've chosen to follow and the pathos that is involved, the depth of feeling and pain and pleasure which is involved. I feel I've always been a kind of a worker soul. Now, Atasha asked me for more detail about my home planet. It's difficult to get a visual element. I get components. It's rather misty and insubstantial. The form and the shape of that world is made by thought. The hues were in the greens to white to light blue to aquamarine, and that set of frequencies, you could say. There was a rich colour to it, but there was shape to it as well. I got elements of almost medieval battlements, but they weren't battlements. The architecture was a bit like that. There were other things, like this scope, which is a bit like a multi-dimensional computer screen, except built into something. The screen itself was somewhere between a screen and a hole, 
but within it happened complete globs of history and information which they could see going on in those worlds they were working with, and they could break it down and rerun it and analyse it to really get the underlying issues that are involved with it. They had inroads into those worlds where they could read off stuff through the scope, except it was far more dimensional than a movie. A movie is a poor comparison, really, but it was like a movie. It was very, very strange. In a sense, it was the classic people with long beards and cloaks, but in another sense they weren't. They were just energies with emergent, say, faces, which would convey character or mood, not exactly mood, but nuance. The feeling was interesting. When I was younger in this life on Earth, I used to love studying for the pure knowledge of it. There's an element of that on this home world of mine. It's like they're in a control tower. They're really involved with these worlds, including on an emotional level. It's not a detached involvement. It's the knowledge that their involvement, their witnessing, their participation makes a difference on that world. It's a reciprocal interaction. And Natasha asked, is there a purpose to help the evolution of these other worlds or to study? What do they do it for? Or is it different every time? The purpose is to open up evolutionary programming and to prepare and create algorithms and programming within which evolutionary possibilities may develop. It's on a planetary or a cultural level, a worldery level, because you can't just talk about planets. It's in terms of worlds and cultures. I mean, culture in the biggest sense of the world, in terms of the complete psychological furniture that a group of souls will take on and populate their world with, in the way that they structure their universe and they perceive their reality. And it's about morphogenetic programming within creation. And these people are programmers. But a programmer is not telling a machine what to do. A programmer is setting up the architecture within which things may evolutionarily unfold. It's the software architecture. That's what the issue is. They're not directly tampering in the evolutionary of worlds. They're just working with the software within them so that the possibilities can get extended or perhaps they can get kind of nudged one particular way, but... It's never really sure whether the people of the world you're working on are really going to go that way. So it's a bit like gardening. You can't tell a plant exactly how to become, but you can give it conditions in which to grow, and the way in which it grows is wonderful in its own right. If every plant grew according to instructions from us, then it wouldn't be exciting to be a gardener. Part of the excitement of being a gardener is to see what happens after you've set the process in motion. So this is fascinating. Now this is what the crop circles are about as well. They are programming tools of some bunch of beings who are entering this data into the Earth's field, which is why crop circles only really need to happen in one place, because it applies to the whole planet morphogenetically. Now... There's something about not tampering with the evolution of a world, but using the existing programming or operating environment in that world, and to adjust and adapt it and write subroutines which will open up certain kinds of possibility. It's like working in a garden, working with different kinds of species, 
and you have to get all the balances right and then leave them to do what they do. In order to balance the garden, you might need to adjust the possibilities to move a new species in, for example, or for a new biological process to start up. But you don't know if it's going to happen. It's just that you introduce that possibility. So in a sense, they're evolutionary programmers. They're dealing with specialist issues, not micromanaging the whole lot. They're not Elohim or anything like that. And Atasha asks, what are their issues? It's more that they're kind of consultants. They're specialist programmers who are dealing with the stuff which in more generalized departments is way beyond other people. It's very specialist stuff. It requires some, well, eggheads isn't the right word, or nerds, because that creates a funny image. But it needs some very erudite and yet worldly wise beings. And there's one key issue here. I've met other beings who are of the nature of pure intellect or intelligence, but these beings on my home world have a lot of compassion in the truest sense of the word of feeling with empathic union. They really can feel into the reality of other beings in a very, very fundamental way. They get a very good readout, but that's on an emotional level, and then they study and analyze it very, very carefully. So in a way, they're specialist consultants called in to handle particular codes or routines, but innovatory routines which other departments can't handle. Now, there's something about making new things which weren't there before, bringing about miracles out of absolutely impossible situations, making something good out of an absolute mess. That flip which fundamentally recontextualizes everything. It not only helps the game, but it shifts the rules of the game. The quantum shift thing has become so crucial on planet Earth because... The situation is so ridiculously and intricately locked up that it has become a super-mega problem, meaning a mathematical problem, as in, how the hell do we work this one out? The thing is, we humans have developed the capacity to answer every little chink of enlightenment with a new sophisticated blockage, with a new way of answering it. We've got this incredible way of getting over our moments of enlightenment and going back to a cringing normality again. That's a new creation of the 20th century because of the sheer extent of denial which was involved throughout human history, but particularly in the 20th century. So it's difficult to create situations that will catalyze reawakening in a sustained way. The disasters and crises we're having across the world are not doing it. They're becoming news fodder, just occasional blips. I'm very aware that there's a download from my home world and I'm used as a sort of a marker boy through which it can be modulated into Earth existence and aimed right. An upload to that world goes through me too, from this planet Earth. I started to become conscious of this from about 1985. I understand that they can't receive us when our ego is closed off when we're angry or caught up in our own stuff. And they won't override that. And I find this one very, very difficult, actually. I, I have a lot of struggle, you know, when I'm 
when I get caught up in my own self and my own concerns or feelings of loss or pain or these kinds of things. We, we, we kind of wrap ourselves in a psychic cloak. And because we're free will beings and because they don't want to interfere in the evolution of our free will, they don't come in. They don't force their way in. They wait until we open up and we give our willingness to being examined, to being experienced. So I've learned to keep my connection there open, as open as I can. And this, again, can be a struggle sometimes. It's like a sort of a, a fibre-optic pipe. That involves self-forgiveness. You know, you don't want God to see your shadow aspect and your personal shame, do you? Giving full permission to them to fully perceive that involves self-forgiveness of my weaknesses. And it's been a very major self-forgiveness process over the years. It's been a bit like a confessional, owning up, really. I know they can see stuff that I can't see as well. Now, one thing I've experienced in my interaction with off-earth beings is that they're highly intelligent and very all-knowing, but they're really out of their depths about planet Earth. They can figure it out, but they've never handled this kind of thing before. And this is why they rely on us so much. We've got to do the business, you see. We are actually greater experts than they are in this particular area of reality. And this is why, really, this matter of pursuing our life purpose and of, um, in a sense, acting according to our deeper instructions, this is why this is so important. In a way, divine intervention can't happen. In a way, that's true. It can only come about through us. So the best they can do is help us do what we need to do, which is why they can't just land in UFOs and directly walk in and save us. It's because they could screw it up even more than us, because we know more than they do about our reality. The difference between them and us is that they have a clarity of consciousness which we've lost, and this loss causes us to be dangerous and to forget and to ignore certain things, and we don't half punish each other as a result, we humans. And then Natasha asks, is there any sense of your home world corresponding to some place in our physical universe? Well, the physical universe is only one part of the whole universe, and within the area of physicality there is time and space, but there are also forms of time and space within non-physical realities too. There are relational patterns. There is a geography there too. There is a location there, and there is a form of time, although time is really much more related to evolutionary stages than to planetary movements and calibrations of time, which it also is here by degrees. We've got one thing which is tick-tock time, but we've got another thing which is, you could call it, inner time. So there's this tick-tock sequentiality to our Earth time, which is created by dense physicality. We, we live on a spinning planet where we get night and day and seasons, and that determines our time perspective, our time perception. That physicality leaves deposits such that you can calibrate 
on a year-by-year -year basis what's happened before. In another world, you would only be able to do it on an evolutionary basis. We've got a situation now on planet Earth where during the 20th century we actually moved through about four centuries of evolution. We accelerated. It has been an ongoing, perhaps exponential, acceleration. So there's a kind of geography, even if we're talking in a non-physical sense. I'd say, it's over there. And, and I kind of pointed due west at a 45-degree 40, angle. That's where I come from. But the thing is, it's not anything to do with this galaxy. It's so far, far away. The link is not close and easy, and our guys are not over this way very much. My particular little clan of beings is a very small number of people, and it's not a significant tribe in the sense of number, but it does have a particular kind of impact. It's a little department, a bit like Room 404 in the BBC, for particular kinds of things. These beings are not evolutionary beings, though they are evolving. They don't specifically need to learn anything, though there is always plenty to learn. But that's not what they're there for. They're in service. They are psycho-engineers. They're grown-up beings, but they never started from being kids. I'd say some of the richest aspects of monastic life on Earth are to do with this world of mine, but it's not in any way involved with religion or austerity. There's something about that learning business. Libraries, pure learning, prayer, compassion, praying for souls. That's the nearest analogy I can think of. It's not hiding away, necessarily. It's very involved with the wider community, as monasteries often were. And although my world is not a spiritual teaching world, I was thinking more of the enriching cultural influences of the medieval monasteries. There are other worlds that are spiritually more beatific than the world I come from. These guys are programmers. They're not even educationalists, not directly interacting with the beings of a world, though working with that world itself and with its morphogenetic possibilities. For me, in this life, as soon as I started coming into adulthood during my teens, something in me was really, really searching for something. I felt such a stranger on earth. I felt a misfit, I felt I, I just couldn't relate to these people around me at all easily. And then, during my teenage years, my spiritual path started, experimenting with consciousness and starting with psychedelics. Later on, I moved into meditation and psychic work, and since then I've done combinations of all three. And I've all, always also sought to be in quite intense energy fields. Uh, it started out for me, particularly with the student revolution at the LSE in the late 60s and around 1970, because a revolution is an energy field in its own right. It's a, it's a thought form which arises, usually out of the people, which gets to a certain strength and intensity which overcomes the dominant thought form of the previous system which existed to that time. And similarly, I've sought out other energy fields 
for example, by creating the camps movement in the 1980s, which is a way of creating an altered reality into which people may enter a, a different energy field from the one they're used to being in. And within that energy field, it's a bit like a highly fertile pot plant or something, within that energy field, they can grow, they can spread their wings, they can set themselves free. And after the initiatory impact, the, the benefit of swimming in this other reality, they can go home and hopefully reintegrate it into their lives and move forward from there in the sense of it's being an empowering event in their lives. And I was particularly happy and proud with the children who used to come to our camps because although it would often just be for a week in their year during their summer holes, it would be such a big experience for them that really that week was equivalent to all the other 51 weeks of the year, you know, and it was a wonderful thing. And I had a lovely experience uh, 10 years ago or so. This strapping young chap comes up to me in his 30s, looking very bright, and he says, Oh, you're Paldon Jenkins, aren't you? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, you won't remember me, but I was one of the children in your children's areas in the camps in the 1980s. And I just want to say that completely set the tone of my life. And thank you very much. Bye. And he walks off. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> but it was, it was an experience of the potency of this business of setting up energy fields in which people may move forward and flower and accelerate. Now, this has also been uh, important for me in the sense that I've always been interested in studying the energy fields of ancient sites and later on of crop formations in the 1990s uh, and early noughties, and the energy fields created in things like what I call circle working, which is where a group of people can sit in a circle and with meditation, using the talking stick and using group processes and things, you can build up an energy field in that circle which becomes an altered reality within which it is then possible to work with all sorts of very, very profound issues on quite a focused and conscious and intentional way. And this is one of the things I hope to be able to set up in my um, in the, the the magic circles which I uh, plan to to carry out with a little help from my friends in the coming time and for as long as I'm able to. When I use the word magic, I'm not using it lightly. This has to do with moving into states of consciousness where the rules are different and where we can work with those rules, laws and ways in order to more fundamentally shift and change the underlying pattern of human psychosocial interaction so that people in the world, in whatever sphere of life, can in some way, even if it's only unconscious, draw on that new patterning, find a way through, 
If you think of people in a crisis or a war, for example, it's very, very difficult when you're in that kind of situation to see your way through. It's very, very difficult to maintain hope and the sense that we're going to get there sooner or later. It's very, very difficult indeed. And people like the Ukrainians are really experiencing that one at the moment. But this is an important issue. And Ukraine itself has become a kind of a, an altered reality energy field of its own right. To some people, it's very inspiring to see what people are doing there. What we're seeing there symbolically is one rather benighted people, the Ukrainians, who by dint of the, the shock and the horror of what has in a way been thrust upon them, although they're not without involvement in that themselves, but it has been thrust upon them. And so their solidarity is demonstrating to the wider world the importance of oneness of mind. This is really, really crucial in the 21st century. In the 20th century, we have had the breaking up, the individualization, the shattering atomization of human consciousnesses such that there are billions of individual souls on earth all rather chaotically interacting with one another, in some cases very stressfully. And this energy dissonance of human psyches bumping up against one another and disharmonizing with one another, this dissonance during the 21st century, if we're going to survive and move forward on planet Earth, we've got to shift that dissonance, that energy field dissonance, into a resonance. And when such a resonance comes about, when all or at least the majority of humanity are resonating, they're vibrating on a similar frequency of implicit consensus and agreement about what is the priority, when we achieve that, miracles will happen. And this is why I believe that in the 21st century, we can possibly fix the climate, fix the question of war and peace, fix the question of poverty and injustice, or at least start the process. It takes time. It takes generations. And as I've said before in my blogs, real full change takes seven generations. Think about it. It takes time. But these times we live in now are critical. Therefore, the challenge is to create new energy fields which in some way override the existing energy fields, the existing energy patterning. Fundamentally, if you could narrow it down to two words, it's a transition from competition to cooperation. And that's what this energy fields business is all about. That's what I'm really interested in. It's a bit like gardening, a bit like cooking. You know, you can put the ingredients together, but when you put it in the oven, you don't really know how it's going to work out. <laughs> and usually the people who are eating it think it's better than the person who cooked it. <laughs> so this is, a, in a manner, a race to the end. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of humanity. And we can choose 
to go home and stick our heads in the TV again and wring our hands at everything that goes on in the world today and, to be honest, avoid it. Or there's something in us that really needs to step up. You've been listening to a podcast from the far beyond with Paldon Jenkins. If you want to find out more about me, then go to my website at paldon.co.uk. The music was made by a lovely man in Austria called Sun Circle, and it came through Pixabay website. Thanks for being with and listening. There's more to come. Thank you.